Some of us other board members got a chance to get a nap now today. <laughs> Here I was telling people, poor Winnie, yesterday was just one long meeting, one meeting after another, and there he had a nap, didn't tell us. <laughs> it's too bad, in a way, that uh, singing cancels out accents, or you could have heard the beautiful Dutch accent of Peter and Etta Weering as they sang, because they have one. I was in a motel recently, and the, the, the hostess at the restaurant had a, a very Holland accent. <laughs> and I said to her, what's that accent? She said, Dutch. I said, what's Dutch? She says, Hollands. I said, speak to Bill Collins, and then we were friends. We were the best of Now, there are two questions that were asked about yesterday's message. Uh, one that I didn't make something plain, and another that uh, there was a scripture I might have added to explain something. Here they are. The first one is Acts 7.53 where uh, Stephen says that they receive the law by the disposition of angels. He asks, or the questioner asks, is there any other scripture on that? Did they receive the law by the disposition of angels? Yes, there is. Galatians 3:19. Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgression until the seed should come to whom the promise was made and it was ordained by angel in the hand of a mediator. God was not the lonely being that some people portray him to have been before man was created. He's called again and again in scripture the Lord of hosts and when you see him, he's almost always in a cloud, not a rain cloud, a fiery cloud that led the people of Israel through Egypt. The Shekinah cloud, evidently the host of his attending angels. When the Lord Jesus first came, remember there was a multitude of the heavenly host when he was born. When he uh, appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration, a cloud surrounded them. I doubt whether that was a rain cloud, a cloud of mist. That was no doubt his attending angels. Peter said, it's wonderful to be here. Let's build three tabernacles. And uh, when he went up to heaven, a cloud received him out of their sight. Behold, he cometh. When he comes again, he'll come with clouds. That is when he comes to rain. And when he comes for us, he'll come with that same cloud. You know that the old English word cloud is almost like our word crowd. Seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, that's a host of people. So I trust that makes that plain. The law was given by angels in the hand of a mediator. That mediator, of course, was Moses. Here's another question. Uh... I still have not grasped, this party says, the reason that Jesus stood up when Stephen 
uh, was tried and then stoned. It says when he fell asleep before that. Remember when Stephen was being tried. And when he pronounced that terrible indictment upon the favored nation. Remember he said, Behold, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, what I tried to bring out yesterday is that they did not see the session or the seating of the Lord Jesus Christ at the Father's right hand in the light that we now see it. Mark, the almost the last verse says, he went to heaven and sat at the Father's right hand. It doesn't say why. It certainly doesn't say that he sat down because the work of redemption was finished. They didn't know, they didn't understand that yet. Peter didn't even understand it at Pentecost. Or he certainly would, he certainly should have told them, Christ died for your sins, you just believe on him. But he didn't tell them that. He evidently didn't understand that yet. How would they understand Christ's seating at the Father's right hand and his rising again? Well, the 110th Psalm, the Father says to the Son, Sit thou at my right hand, what's the next word? until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The point was they don't want you there. All right, sit here until I make your enemies your footstool. So you see, to them, the rising again of the Son and of the Father, evidently, the rising again of the Son meant that that until had been completed. Sit at my right hand until... I make your enemies your footstool. And now Stephen says, I see him, he's standing. What did that mean? That meant that the judgment was imminent. God was ready to judge as far as prophecy was concerned. We're going to see this morning, however, with the help of the Lord, how the program of prophecy was interrupted by a secret that God had kept hidden in his heart of love for centuries of time. Now then, will you turn please to Acts 8. Acts 8, another interruption in the book of Acts, and a most vital one, perhaps the most vital of all. We saw how Stephen's address was interrupted, and how he was dragged or cast outside of the city and was stoned to death, and the nation had committed the unpardonable sin. In the case of... Uh, John the Baptist, when he was beheaded, they had permitted it. If the nation had risen against what Herod had done in putting Stephen or putting John in prison, he never could have beheaded him. But they permitted it. They were indifferent to John's message. Then the Father sent the Son and Christ came. In that case, they demanded it. They said, let him be crucified, away with him, kill him. In the case of Stephen, they commented it. First they permitted it, then they demanded it, now they committed it as they themselves took stones in their hands and stoned Stephen to death. Now remember, there was at this scene a young man by the name of Saul, perhaps too young to cast those stones, I don't know. It says he was a young man. And they laid down, those who did the stoning, laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. 
But he himself, I would take it, as I read between the lines here, I would take it he himself would like to have taken part in that stoning. He was consenting unto his death. He was saying, as it were, kill him, kill him, away with such a man from the earth. Now then, chapter 8 of Acts, the first three verses. And Saul was consenting unto his death. And at that time there was a great persecution against the church which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church. Entering, that is, he's not talking about the body of Christ here yet. He's talking about God's called out people. That's all the word church means. That's an interdispensational word. And Saul made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women, dragging them, committed them to prison. And he says, when they were tried in another place, when they were tried and put to death, I gave my vote against them. What a bitter, relentless enemy Saul of Tarsus was against the believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. He made havoc of the church. Look, please, at the ninth chapter. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Oh, there's a whole long list of passages of this kind which shows the bitter enmity against this flaming leader of the rebellion against Christ. Beloved, this was war. War had been declared against God and against his Son. If the believers in Acts 4 had reason to quote Psalm 2, now there was double reason for it. Why do the nations rage and the people, that is the people of Israel, imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth have set themselves. They're stubborn and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bands asunder and let us cast their cords from us. Do you know what the answer to that was to be? Go on. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. My friend, never set yourself in opposition to God. Pharaoh tried it. You know what happened to him? Israel tried it. You know what happened to them? The nations tried it. You know what happened to them? He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. That doesn't mean to be happy. What do you laugh at? You laugh at the ridiculous, don't you? You laugh at jokes, and it was a sad joke. It was ridiculous that man should try to run the ship of state, as it were, without Christ. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Now, of course, he's taken you right into the tribulation. 
where God declares war on man or makes a counter-declaration. Man had made a declaration of war, beloved, on God and his Christ, and God was to make a counter-declaration of war. But oh, here's the wonderful interruption. How gracious our God is, how slow to anger, how plenteous in mercy. He had kept a secret of love in his heart. It was, it was bound up there. He never said one word about it. You have all kinds of types of Christ in his wonderful finished work and of his grace in the Old Testament, but not one of them even says it is a type, much less what it typifies, not one. Not until you come to the Apostle Paul and all of a sudden it all opens up and you say, why, this was his eternal purpose, just as he says. He had this in mind all the while. Look back, please, at Acts 2. Acts 2 and the 16th verse. Acts 2, 16. I'll begin at verse 15. Here Peter is standing up with the eleven, addressing the multitude that uh, is astonished at hearing these people, everyone, speak in their own tongues. Uh, in the 15th verse, he says, These men are not drunken, as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. The saloons aren't open yet, if you please. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. Beloved, I wish that all of us here could point to the scriptures as intelligently and as authoritatively as Peter did that day and say, this is that. We've got a little booklet. I don't know if it's back there or not. This is that, but what is this? <laughs> you see, and people don't know what this is that's happening today, but we ought to know. Peter said, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel in Joel 2. And it shall come to pass, he's quoting now, it shall come to pass in the last days, Get the implication? This is it. The last days have begun. What you're seeing is what Joel prophesied about the last days. That is the last days of prophecy. In the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And this is further what is to take place in the last days. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to light, or to, uh, moon to blood, I should say, before that great and notable, or as uh, Joel has it, that great and terrible day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, beloved, is it not crystal clear? First, that two things are here prophesied about the last days. God was to pour out his spirit on his own. Why? Well, to prepare them for the terrible things to come, to make them ready 
Second, he was to pour out judgment upon his enemies. And is it not further crystal clear that the first took place? He did pour out his spirit upon the believers there at Pentecost. And there were signs and wonders wrought by the apostles. And more than that, as we saw, I guess, on Sunday night, a Sunday afternoon, they were enabled to live lives wholly pleasing to God. Not a sin, not a blunder, not a mistake did they commit. So the Spirit was poured out. But is it not just as clear that the judgments have not yet been poured out. What a wonderful thing it is to get that in our minds clearly, that that prophecy in Joel has been interrupted, that God in grace interrupted prophecy by the unfolding, by the revealing of a secret that he kept in his heart of love until the stage was all set for the judgment to fall until everything was ready as far as prophecy was concerned for the bowls of God's wrath to be poured out. Not yet, says God, not yet. And what did he do? Oh, here's the place I must read that letter. I promised to read to you the letter that I received. It made me very sad to read something like this. I am. This is one of the leaders in the so-called grace movement, where I think the new evangelicalism has come in and taken stronghold. Listen, I am especially interested in the serious condition in which uh, we find our so-called grace movement today. We have few effective grace churches left in the USA. In fact, I truly believe that we are seeing the beginning of the end of the grace movement. Our grace young people have little, if any, interest in joining our grace churches or studying the grace message. I told you yesterday what I wrote him. You're in the wrong orbit, my friend. You're among those who have compromised with the new evangelicalism. And we have warned you and warned you and made many bad friends or good enemies by uh, telling the truth about it and warning people against this. We've told you if you don't purge out that leaven quickly, it will leaven the whole lump. And now it's done it for you. Several people in this audience came to me yesterday and said, I know, I'm there. How true that is. It is in that orbit where the young people have been neutralized. Oh, they love to use the name of O'Hare, but they don't follow in his ways. They don't, they don't sound like they're ready to die for the grace message and for the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery, but they ought to be. And by God's grace, let us be. It's a sad thing, and we've got to be ready. Sometimes some people can be very bold and enter right in among... Uh, people who have taken their stand uh, at one time against this, but they get in there, you know, and they try to win them over. Beloved, we have two pamphlets back there. Why the BBF? And the other is sensitivity training in the Bible. Have them both and ask them some hard questions. Have these things ever been repudiated? Have they been taken back 
They might say, oh, well, there was a little of that, but it's all, that's all different now. It's not different now. Beloved, we must be careful that we are not neutralized. It's easy. It can happen easily. We must thank God as we have never done before. Doesn't it thrill you to think that when the judgment was all ready to fall, God in his grace saved the chief of sinners, the leader of this wicked rebellion against God and his Christ. And that very day he made him an apostle. Right in the same day on the road to Damascus, he made him an apostle. And the great example of the grace, the matchless grace of God. And here he comes, and his great message gradually, of course, unfolded to and by him. But his great message was, God is not imputing your trespasses to you. Christ paid for your sins. He's the one whose preaching is called the preaching of the cross. As good news, that is. Peter preached the cross. He said, you killed him. And with wicked hands, you crucified him and slew him. And when they said, what shall we do? He said, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. He didn't say... Christ died for your sins. Just believe him and salvation is yours. No, he didn't. You wait until you get to Paul. And it is he who says, But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God conferred upon us through the death of Christ. So don't you see, here is a, uh, an amazing interruption and we are still in it that was a long interruption was it not Paul never dreamed God would make that such a long interruption he says but we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord he never dreamed that the Lord in grace would remain a voluntary exile for 1900 years he tells Timothy and Titus to be looking for that blessed hope and the appearing in glory of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. He says to the Thessalonians, you turn to God from idols to serve the living and the true God and to wait, even back then, 1900 years ago, to wait for his Son from heaven. He never dreamed that God would be so long-suffering. 1900 years he's waited and still, my unsaved friend in this audience, he's giving you an opportunity. Still, he's saying the door of grace is open. Christ died for your sins. There's nothing he asks you to do or pay. He doesn't say you should pray or be sorry enough. He says if you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner, needy, hopelessly needy in the sight of God, you may believe that Christ died for your sins and accept him as your savior for the wages of sin is death but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord now since a few people ask me I want to say again something that I mentioned yesterday about the rent veil some didn't understand that I guess I'm not a very good teacher but I'm going to try again now we now look at that rent veil and we say the veil has been rent into the holiest and we can go right into the presence of God. No priest, no mediator between. We can go right into the presence of God and follow Christ in, as it were, 
our forerunner, and enter right before, not a mercy seat, now it's a throne of grace. Think of that. You ever put those two together? Old Testament, a mercy seat. Now it's a throne of grace. Now, but back there, when that veil in the temple was rent, they did not see that significance. It was not the veil to the holiest in heaven that had been rent. It was the veil in the holiest on earth, that temple which God had forsaken, over which the word Ichabod, the glorious departed, had been written. And now they see that veil uh, rent from top to bottom. And what does the holiest place reveal? Not the presence of God, not his Shekinah glory, no glory. The glory is departed, the glory is gone. It's just an empty room with a piece of furniture in it. And God is not there. But later, later comes Paul and he says, Oh, now, there's more. There's more. That was typical of something. The true holiest is in heaven. God doesn't live in temples made with hands. He lives far beyond space in the highest heavens. And the entrance into that has been opened. Look, please, at uh, Hebrews chapter 9. A very beautiful passage to read and to take in. Hebrews chapter 9, and uh, let's see here, the, um, the, um, beg your pardon, I'll have it right away, the uh, 19th verse, uh, uh, chapter 10, I'm sorry, chapter 10, verses 19 and 20, look at this. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Now the next word by, I always hesitate to correct the King James Version. But I don't know why the translators in this case didn't follow their own text. They didn't follow the received text here. That second word, by, might make it look like there are two things, by the blood of Jesus and by a new and living way. No, the blood of Jesus is the new and living way by which we enter into the presence of God. Now let me read it that way. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, a new and living way which is con which he hath consecrated for us through the veil that is to say his flesh he's consecrated for us a way into the very presence of God how do we get into the presence of God what is that way what is that new and living way ah uh, it's sins paid for it's the blood of Christ it's the veil that separated us, taken out of the way now. And we can enter right in the presence of God. Oh, my friend, we ought to be very grateful for that. I think one of the greatest truths for the Christian to know and appreciate is the truth of access. Therefore, being justifi justified by faith, we have peace 
with God, says Romans 5, 1, through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein he, we stand. That's a very blessed truth. I hope all of you not only know it, but appreciate it. And that we thank God as we kneel down in prayer before him and thank him that because the Lord Jesus died for us, we may enter right into his presence. Anybody could read this story in Acts. Saul of Tarsus, in one chapter, chapter 9, breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord. In that same chapter, he saved and suddenly the pitiless persecutor becomes not just a docile follower, the devoted follower of the one he had so bitterly persecuted. How can we read that story without thinking of 1 Timothy 1, 13 to 16? That's a precious passage that all of us should know. He says, I thank God that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. I was, a, I, I, I was injurious. I, I, I fought everything that was right and was for what was wrong. But he says, I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly and in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. And now listen again, if you're not saved, this is a faithful saying. This is something you can count on and bank on and act on. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. He led the world. He led Israel in the world in rebellion against Christ. But the next verse says, how be it? And this is what people forget. When I was a young man, I used to say, Paul says he's the chief of sinners. I don't believe he was. I believe I am. <laughs> I was a young lad, and that may have been a good spirit, all right. But I was contradicting scripture. This is not only uh, Paul's word to Timothy. It's God's word to us. It was written by inspiration. The chief of sinners was saved by the grace of God. So he says, How be it for this cause I obtained mercy, that in me first he might show forth all long suffering, or in me chiefly, it's the same word, might show forth all long suffering for a pattern to them who should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. Now I say that's a precious passage, but more than that, it is a representative passage. Paul was a representative of Jew and Gentile. He was a Hebrew. He was intensely Hebrew. He was a born Hebrew. It's the same with his Roman citizenship. He was intensely Roman. He was a born Roman. But look what I read in the fifth chapter of Romans and see how representative this is. Romans Five, and this will bring you back again to Stephen who says you receive the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. 
Now then, look at Romans 5 and the 20th verse. In verse 12, he says, How by Adam sin entered. Here in verse 20, he says, Moreover, the law entered, that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. This is an historical thing. Paul was representative of what we read here. Paul had been zealous of the law, but he hadn't kept it. Paul had been zealous of the law, but it hadn't saved him. Now he says, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace, say that word good and loud, reign that grace might reign. We come now to a Savior who is seated on a throne of grace. Grace reigns. How wonderful. Well, that's why, in, in fact, in the fifth of Acts, you have a whole historical thing there. Have you ever asked yourself why, in the sixth verse, he says, why we were yet without strength, Christ died for. Why say why we were yet without strength? He died before I was without strength. He died 1,900 years ago. I was born, I'm not going to tell you, just a few years ago. Uh, but he died before I was born. He's speaking historically. While we, we human beings, were yet without strength, Christ died for us. The eighth verse, why we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 10, why we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son. Oh, thank God that this all eventuated in grace. All the law, all the prophets, all the types, all pointed to Christ and his finished work. And now, in the light of the epistles of Paul, we can see it. They say that in Rome there is a... Is a a circle of statues with one central statue. And all the, the statues in the center are pointing to the central one. And that's how it is in the Word of God. They all point to Christ, and Paul now looks back and points to the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, so much for this great interruption, but I do hope that you will take this home if you remember nothing else about the interruptions of the book of Acts. Maybe you even knew about this mentally, intellectually before. But make it a part of your life. Make it a wonderful thing, the wonderful thing that it is as you witness to others that this world has been doomed to judgment long ago. People are trying to reform it. They're trying to do things to make it a better world to live in. Beloved, it's hopeless. You're not going to succeed. I think when our politicians talk about lasting peace, they have to be talking with their tongues in their cheeks. Don't you think so? Can they really believe that? That seems very difficult. Every one of them are intelligent and enough to know something about history. Do they think they're going to change human nature, actually, so that finally we all get to love one another and we'll have such a happy world? Oh, nonsense. They can't really believe that. And God says it's not so. This world was doomed to judgment 1,900 years ago. And the stage was all set 1,900 years ago for God to 
pour out those bowls of his wrath. Peter had said in Acts 3, 19, if you repent, God will send Jesus back in the times of refreshing. Those long promise, those beautiful times of refreshing will come from the presence of the Lord, but they didn't repent. But instead of sending the judgment, God interrupted prophecy with the mystery. Did you get that? Say that to yourself. Remember it. He interrupted prophecy with a secret, a secret of wonderful, wonderful love. Now then, I'm going to give you just a little foretaste, since I have time and we were just going to take this uh, as we went along, a little foretaste for tomorrow. We're going to talk about the next interruption very briefly and give you a start. Turn, please, to Acts in the 10th chapter. Acts chapter 10. Here's another interruption. If I had to give it a topic, I'd call it glorious interruption. A wonderful interruption. I think Peter, as he looked back later, must have been so glad that the Lord interrupted him. He says, well, I, I had just begun to speak. As I began to speak, the Lord took it out of my hands, and the Lord did something wonderful. Look, please, at uh, Acts 10, and see what kind of a man Cornelius was. What a, what a wonderful person to have lived next door to, <laughs> or to have known. Uh, verse 2 of chapter 10. He was a devout man, a pious man, one that feared God with all his house. Now this doesn't mean only his children. He might have had them in subjection so that they listened to anything he said. But I want you to look at verse 7, please. And when the angel which spake unto Cornelius was departed, he called two of his household servants and a devout soldier of them that waited on him continually. There's a devout soldier. He was highly respected. There we have it, a devout man, one that feared God with all his house and gave much alms unto the people. He was rich, but he didn't keep it all for himself. He gave generously, liberally. He was open-handed to those who had need. And he prayed not to gods. He prayed to God. I think we would be surprised if we knew how many unsaved people pray. Now, I haven't come to the question whether he was saved or not, but it doesn't say so here yet. We'd be surprised if we knew how many people pray and pray to God. That doesn't save them yet, you know. But he prayed to God always. Look, please, at verse 22. Here the three messengers have come to the house of Simon, the tanner, where Peter was. And they said, Cornelius, the centurion, now listen, a just man, and one that feareth God, and of good report, among all the nation of the Jews. They said about Cornelius, he's a Roman centurion. He's still a pagan, but he doesn't pray to those pagan gods. He prays to our God. What a wonderful thing that is. He was of good report among all the nations of the Jews. Look at the 30th verse, please. And Cornelius said, now Peter has come to Cornelius' home. And Cornelius said, four days ago I was fasting fasting until this hour 
and we find what he was fasting about, he wanted to know God. He wanted really to know the true God. He knew he was the true God. He prayed to him. He was pious. He tried to live like that. God would want him to live, but he wanted really to know him. Now that brings us to the question, was Cornelius saved at this time? Look please at chapter 10 again, verse 35. In every nation, Peter says, in every nation, he that feareth him, feareth God, and worketh righteousness, is accepted with him. Now, we might conclude from that verse that Peter, or that Cornelius was already saved. But it doesn't exactly say that, does it? And I think there are a considerable number of verses that indicate that he was not yet saved, that he was accepted in the sense that Lewis Berry Schaefer put it, that he was accepted as a man who wanted to be saved. He was accepted uh, as, uh, as one who could be saved, the, the kind God would save, not because of the good works he did. Those good works were wrought only because he wanted to know the true God and wanted to live like him. Let's look now at the 10th chapter and the 5th and 6th verses. Now, the vision has been received by uh, Cornelius, and God says to him, And now send men to Joppa and call for one Simon, whose surname is Peter. He lodges with one Simon a tanner, whose house is by the seaside. He shall tell thee what thou oughtest to do. Does that sound familiar to you? Remember when John came in Mark 1, 8, uh, preaching the uh, gospel of repentance and baptism for the remission of sins? I should say uh, Luke in the third chapter, in the third verse. Remember how the people said, well, what do we do? And he told them what they would have to do, what the requirements were for that new way of life. Uh, the, uh, the soldiers said, what do we do? And he told them what they should do. And the publicans said, what do we do? And he told them what they should do, what they had to do to fit into God's program at that time, what he would require in that way of life. Now then, remember at Acts 2.37, when they were pricked in their heart, they said, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said, repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. And in the 16th chapter, remember how that Philippian jailer said, What must I do to be saved? And Paul said to him, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Now, I think it is clear from the rest of this uh, story here that this is exactly what God meant when he said to him, You go to Peter, and he shall tell thee what thou shalt do. I tell you why because it's interpreted for us in the 11th chapter, where Peter tells them what happened. Now then, the 14th verse. Uh, Who shall tell thee words whereby thou and all thy house shall be saved. He'll tell you words whereby you'll be saved. Look at the 10th chapter, verse 43. To him... 
give all the prophets witness. Now Peter is preaching. This is his last before he was interrupted. To him give all the prophets witness that through his name whosoever believeth in him shall receive what? The remission of sins. Evidently he did not yet have the remission of sins. Look at the 10th chapter and uh, the, uh, the 11th chapter and the 18th verse. The 11th and the 18th verse. When they heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, Then hath God to the Gentiles also granted repentance unto life. And that's what happened when Peter went to visit them. One more thing, the 43rd verse, and with this I close. Here's Peter preaching. He just got started. But he says something that is true both of prophecy and of the mystery. He says to him, to Christ, give all the prophets witness that through his name whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sin. Now that's taught in John's Gospel. That's taught about our Lord when he was on earth. They had to believe in him to be saved, didn't they? But to believe in him, they also had to do what he commanded at that time for salvation, you see. So it was to believe on him implied more, but God stopped him right there. He just said, whosoever believeth on him shall receive remission of sins, and while Peter yet spake, the Holy Ghost came upon them, and they began to speak with tongues and so on. Well, the time is up, but so much for the fact of the interruption in the case of the, the visit of Peter to the household of Cornelius, and what a glorious interruption. We know what Peter would have preached. We're going to deal with that tomorrow. He would not have told them Christ died for your sins, but he said just enough, and God stopped him and took it out of his hands. We'll deal with that tomorrow. Thank you.